Hey guys, and welcome to Personality Bingo with me, your host, Tom Moore. So this week on the podcast, we have Des Doyle. Des is a filmmaker based here in Dublin at the moment, but he's most uh, well known for his show, Showrunners, um, The Art of Running a TV Show. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, I had a watch uh, in advance of Des coming on. Um, I actually owe Liz Alper, fan of the show, uh, a massive thank you for setting myself and Des up. I hadn't met Des. I'm so glad that I had. First of all, he's a super interesting guy. Second of all, he's really kind. And third of all, he's fascinating, as is his show. It kind of gives you a peek into what happens behind the scenes and how your favourite shows are made. It's really fascinating. It's got un- unbelievable guests. JJ Abrams, Josh Whedon, all these amazing people. But anyway, Des is fascinating. You're going to hear all about it momentarily. But a massive thank you to Liz Alper, who is also a writer in LA, in Hollywood. We have Hollywood fans uh, on Hawaii Five O, which I just think is the coolest. Uh, and she seems like a super sweet person who I hope to meet in person someday. But Liz, regardless, thank you so much for setting that up. And Des, thank you for taking the time to do it. Guys, other than that, um, I haven't really been giving this the attention it deserves because we're doing a live podcast. It's so exciting. It's as part of the Dublin Podcast Festival. We are paired with an Irish man abroad at the Tivoli Theatre, September 22nd. Guys, it's so exciting. I'm going to be interest, uh, interviewing Jarlett Regan, who is a hero of mine, of an Irishman abroad fame. His show, Organ Freeman, is also on at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, I've had friends who've gone to see it and they say it's absolutely incredible. Uh, and he's going to be talking to Roddy Doyle right after. The tickets are for both of the shows. They're 18 euro guys it's going to be an unreal day and i would love to see you down at it it would mean the world it's a massive opportunity for myself for the podcast and just to chat to someone like jarlett is going to be so interesting you can be there to hear the whole thing live i couldn't recommend any more please do get tickets because i think this will sell out not because of me because of jarlett and roddy but hey i will happily surf on them coattails do you surf on coattails you do now uh guys other than that check me out in the rivals we've got another two and a bit weeks um to go the play's actually great. It's so fun. Um, it was kind of scary doing it at the start. Now I'm like confident to say it's great. We've had four-star reviews across the board, um, and it's just a bit of crack. Uh, let me know if you are coming into that, uh, because it would be great to just know that there are some fans of the show in listening. Guys, other than that, I'm going to be at the Fringe Festival with Fierce Notions, uh, and Fionn Foley is a writer. That Andy Carberry is uh, the producer. It's with Illa Voice Theatre Company. It's a brand-new Irish musical, which is kind of incredible, with an awesome cast that I am, again, surfing on the coattails of. I am an amazing surfer at this stage. Guys, other than that, I'm going to be doing King Lear out in the mill. What a weird and wonderful few months this has been in terms of diversity of shows. Come see that. It's going to be gas crack. Guys, other than that, um, a massive thank you for taking the time to listen and enjoy Des Doyle playing Personality Bingo with Tom Moran. Oh, Des Doyle, you ready to play Personality Bingo with Tom Moran? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's as good an answer as we can hope for. Uh, first thing of a Tuesday morning. Uh, right, so I'll give you a quick explainer of how it all works. So I have 60 balls in here, 60 sheet, uh, sixty questions on the sheet, and I'm going to put 60 minutes on the clock. Uh, we've randomly generated five numbers <laughs> for you. If you'd be so kind as to read out those five numbers, that would be excellent. Okay, so we have 60, mm-hmm. 47... 3, 22, and 19. Wonderful. I'm going to ask you to pick a sixth number of your choosing. Um, something that you fancy might come up today for yourself, maybe. Okay, well then, I, I'll i put 13 in. Ooh, bold move. I, I, I was born on Friday the 13th, so that number has uh, has followed me around a little bit over really? time. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. So it has no unlucky connotations for you. I wouldn't say that, but... Uh, <laughs> So it's 50-50, I think, at the okay. moment. Like, yeah. Okay. All right, very cool. Right, well, um, hey, let's just... Oh, there's someone buzzing in together. Hello, whoever it is. They'll get it in the other room as okay. well. Um, let's, just, uh, let's just dive right into it. Okay. Okay, here we go. Whoa. All sorts of balls coming out. First number out of the gate, number 22. Do you have that one? I do. Whoa. That is very impressive. <laughs> All right, you can tick that off your list. Oh, okay. That that rarely happens. Okay. This 13 thing could have turned out <laughs> to be a stroke of genius. Right, number 22, I'll read the question. Um, oh, nice way to start off. When you were in school, did you ever get detention? Yes. What did you do? Um, I think I failed to deliver a piece for the school magazine on time, and that caused some knock-on problems for the teacher in question, and, and possibly out of... 
well, I, I don't want to say spite, but they were annoyed enough with me to um, to put me in detention for an afternoon. Really? Um, but yeah, but that that's that's probably the worst thing I did. I was a I was a pretty good kid at school, generally speaking. Mm. Um, and you know, did my homework, uh, showed up on time most of the time and stuff, whatever. So that, that yeah, that's about as bad as it got for me at school, I think. Right, and so was like, so you were writing for the school newspaper like at a relatively young age. Were you always kind of into that, like, you know, creating kind of thing from a young age? Um, yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, I, I used to, you know, when they give you essays and stuff to kind of write in school. Like sometimes they give you just like a, a one line thing and make a story about it and people would come in they'd write a page or two I'd write 20 and it would become like a kind of an ongoing story thing and it, it did get to the point where uh, one of my English teachers uh, called me up one day and said said one I want to tell you I, I always look forward to reading what, what you write two you're more than likely going to be end up being a journalist or a writer or something the way things are going but three if you do this in the leaving cert you're fucked <laughs> right, uh, right. Sorry, can I use my? Oh, oh yeah, okay. Go for it. <laughs> um, because you're never gonna have the time. Yeah. To write, you know, twenty pages or whatever. So you need to find a way to to edit what you're doing, kind of. Um, but yeah, I, I I I have always kind of enjoyed writing. Um, and then I started doing like kind of short films on on Super Eight and video and stuff and whatever um, with friends, um, most of which are pretty bad but have maybe one or two nice shots or ideas or, or whatever in them um and then that kind of led to like trying to trying to get in and do things professionally if you like mm, mm. Yeah. It's, it's so funny like it, it's almost cliched but like i think we all nearly have a story of like an english teacher who kind of like yeah it, it, it's teacher, I yeah say. yeah i i guess um you know and uh <sighs> I, I always had people who kind of encouraged me, I, I guess, in the right way. Um, and uh, I think when I was 12, I won a, an essay competition. And they gave me a little kind of a, a, a plaque or something for it. But they made me go to this event where you had to read it out in public to a whole bunch of people. That part of it was was terrifying. Um, but my parents were kind of like, no, just just imagine it's like you're just, you're just reading someone else's story or whatever. Um, but yeah, like lots of good things kind of happened along, I suppose, when I was young to kind of encourage me that maybe I had some ability to write. Although weirdly, it, it, it's been more, the writing hasn't been to the forefront maybe kind of in the last period of time. And it is something I would actually like to try and get back to a little bit at the moment. So mm. if anybody wants to hire me to write yeah. something, uh, I'm, I'm open for business. <laughs> and, and I'm writing to that you're teaching now as well. Uh, teaching's a strong word. I, I, I'm, I've been working with Screen Training Ireland to kind of facilitate opportunities for Irish writers to interact with uh, US showrunners mm. and to try and give them a sense of what a writer's room feels like, r runs like, and to try and get advice from people who are like super experienced in how you make US television because it's completely different to the way that it's done over here. And... I'm doing one or two things with them as well, which are kind of more like um, for producers and writers here to to say, this is kind of what the television landscape looks like at the moment. So mm -hmm. this is what networks are doing. This is what they're buying. This is, and try and give them a sense of like, if, if they're looking to pitch a project uh, over there at the moment, here's where the potential opportunities are to do that. Um, so teaching is a strong word, um, but... Uh, passing on information mm, mm. Uh, a little bit as much as I can and um, but I'm, I'm kind of gearing up to kind of go back and start doing something else over there as well at the moment so um, we'll, we'll see how things continue on that thing. Fascinating okay this is like super interesting to me I might get a bit <laughs> nerdy on you now um, what, so what was it that originally brought you over to LA? Um, the first time I ever went to LA or, or which showrunners are um, yeah yeah, I suppose. Yeah, like yeah. What was your your journey? I suppose to even I suppose showrunners like is the thing that probably most people would know yeah. you for. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And, and if they know me at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no. I funny before because Liz Alper, fan of the show, massive thank you for setting this up. Yes, thank um, you, Liz. And before she even, um, I, I'd heard of that show before, okay. um, and I've since seen it, and it, it's wonderful. The, oh, thank you. So yeah, it's um. But 
I mean, yeah, the first time. Yeah, what was the first time that? I, I mean, the the first time was go visit friends. I mean, that I and just LA was a place I always wanted to go because, like, I I am like an obsessive kind of film and TV nerd, like. I am the person that if you buy the box set of something, you don't just watch the episodes. You listen to all the commentaries. You watch all the. You, you, you're trying to find out as much information all the time mm. uh, about about how things are made, which is why I got into filmmaking. I think in the first place, and and specifically maybe the camera department because camera is the one thing you can't make a film without. You can literally do without everything else except a camera and somebody behind it. So you're kind of always there, and it's it's actually a great way to. One, it's a great way to learn technically in terms of what you can do with cameras, how you frame, how you light, whatever. But it's also a great way to watch other directors and learn from their experiences. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with, like, some of the best people here and some great people who've come in from abroad here to, like, people doing their first ever film-based short or, or, or whatever. So you, you kind of learn from other people's mistakes, which which is good. Mm. Um, but, yeah, the, the the one of the things I always want to do in, in going to LA was do the studio tours you know um, kind of get backstage wherever I could or whatever and I knew one or two people over there who were able to do one or two things for me in that regard but because I was kind of um, becoming more and more fascinated with U how US television was being made and the phenomena of the showrunner and that was really down to loss because I was obsessed with that show mm. and um Damon and, and Carlton, who were the showrunners on that show, were one of the first to kind of really put themselves out there. And they were doing podcasts and video casts and a lot of interviews and television because Lost was one of those shows that was so complicated and there was so much going on with it that ABC, the TV network was on in the States, kept pushing them out there to kind of explain to people, if you're a little confused, if you're a little lost, listen, here, here we'll, we'll fill you in and bring you up to speed. Um and they were the, they were the guys that really really got me interested in the idea of show running, and then after that I just started reading and devouring everything and whatever, and and um, that's when I kind of got to the point of pitching something to the film board and saying, "Would you allow me to do something uh, with this?" Which they very kindly did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and actually, it just struck me that um, maybe to explain what a showrunner is, because yeah, if um, you're not in the industry, it's probably not. So yeah, so basically the, the showrunner is the main uh, creative and uh, producing uh, voice uh, behind a TV show. So they're responsible for uh, everything that happens in terms of story, characters, but they're also in charge of everything that happens in terms of wardrobe choices, music, directors, supporting cast, uh, how, how the episodes are edited. Um, it's... A phenomenally challenging task because on on a, on a big on a network show like if you're on CBS or ABC, you can have a crew of three hundred to four hundred people working for you. You can have a budget of between eighty to ninety million dollars for each season. So you're kind of like the CEO of a small company, and you've got to deliver twenty-two to twenty-four mini movies over a nine-month period. And you you can't go over budget and you can't be late delivering an episode mm. uh, or if you are there are massive penalties that kind of come with that so it's a hugely stressful job it's hugely demanding I mean the guys would work first especially in the early seasons when you're trying to build the show up and get it up on its feet they're working 16 to 18 hour days they're working seven days a week um, you know they, they get a, a handful of days off in the year because even when the show stops you got to bring the writers back and start planning out the next season so that you've scripts ready for when you're starting shooting again. It's mm. kind of, it's one of those treadmill things that you can't really kind of get off. Wow, wow, and like it's one of them jobs. You're like, how do they actually do that without ridiculous amount of drugs or something? <laughs> do you know, like it's eighteen hour days for that. Long. I think sometimes there can be drugs. Uh, there's yeah. a huge amount of candy. Um, really, every writers' room I've been in, it's like the amount of chocolate and donuts and really, really bad stuff uh, just to keep people going, you know? It's like the sugar rush, the kind of energy thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, but, like, as shows go along, um, good showrunners get um, really develop the abil ability to kind of, you know, appoint other people to, to do things for them and can trust them to go off and do that. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can't delegate, I think... And there are people out there who are very micromanagey. It makes the job actually much harder just for you yourself trying to do it and, and increases the stress levels usually. But if you can delegate well and you've got a good team around you, you can get to a position. I mean, 
I, I don't want to overpin it as a bad thing. Lots of people love, they absolutely love the job and mm. love what they do. And it's a fantastic opportunity to do something, like to tell a story over multiple years. Uh, uh, Andrew Marlowe, who created Castle, described it to me as um, an ongoing cultural conversation uh, with the audience. And that, that that's a, an amazing thing to be able to do and have people invest, you know, in your characters. Um, but it can, uh, you know... It it can it can be difficult and and it has lots of areas of of challenge around it I suppose but if you get a hit show uh, that you enjoy doing and it and it also happens to become very financially rewarding at the yeah. same time that's not a, not a bad place to be no, you know no you know it's absolutely incredible yeah. like and the the show that it, like my biggest insight before I'd seen showrunners was um, Love on Netflix have you seen that yeah, the, yeah. and I, I even in the writers room you know the way he's like the, the oh, that, that, that is absolutely not what not to do in a writers room yes I had a feeling <laughs> I was going to ask you how how true to life was that, or is uh, that? I've actually asked some people about that episode I believe it's it's a, a mix of three or four different people's experiences with three or, three or four different things that they've kind of amalgamated into that right. but but yes watch that for exactly what not to do if you were ever given a golden key to come into a writer's room um, the yeah I, I don't know I, I can't imagine anybody would be that stupid I hope there's nobody that would be as stupid as, as um, I'm trying to think of the character's name now. I can't Gus, think of isn't it? Yeah, Gus, yeah. Uh, in, in that particular episode. But uh, yeah, uh, way to blow it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know because I'm, I'm genuinely fat. Do you ever listen to um, the Script Notes podcast? No, I don't actually, no. It's, very, it's a guy, Craig Mason and John August are okay. two screenwriters and um they have it's really it's really really good but like that they're they're more f um film but they have a lot of tv people on yeah um and yeah like they're like that like at the start like you're gonna be just like terrified and your job is to kind of just yet yeah, not fuck it up at yeah. the start like and there, there's a really good tv one called uh children of tendu which is done by javi grigio marswatch and uh, uh um jose molina and like, there's tons of really, really good advice for, for specifically for writing for television. Right. In in, in that one, if if people want to check What's it out, Children of Tendu, T E N D U. Wow. Okay. Um, oh, well, interesting. All right. Fascinating. Okay. Well, let's <laughs> give it another spin. But, okay. Um, I have a feeling I will quiz you again because <laughs> I'm super interested. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, number fifty nine. Do you have that? I do not. Okay. No worries. Number fifty nine. What is your relationship to your phone? <laughs> Troubling. Really? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I suppose I spend way too much time on my phone. Yeah. Um, I, I think ever since phones have become mobile offices, it it's actually just makes it harder because, you know, you you are constantly checking email or, um, at the moment, like I'm doing a lot of research on two different projects as well. So, if if the ease of which, it, like, if you're traveling or whatever, that you can still be kind of going through material. Mm. Uh, so I, it's not like I'm playing games and stuff on my phone all the time or, you know, I, I never bought into the Candy Crush madness or any of that stuff. But uh, The Simpsons for a little while, but I had to delete it because I was starting to spend real money on pixels and that's a, that's a really bad place to end up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, too much time on my phone. And, and and since I've added Spotify as well, I just I find myself, like, the phone's on all night then. It's just it's music in the background or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, because the way things are working with the time difference with LA these days, like I, I do end up spending a lot of time up till two or three in the morning when you're trying to communicate with people over there, get things done over there or whatever. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's bad. I, I I did try the, there was a thing on, on the one show on BBC where they were giving you kind of tricks to try and disentangle yourself from your phone a little bit over time. Um, and I did try one or two of those, but, I did actually get itchy a bit like it was like it is, it is slightly troubling I should really it's probably not good for you the amount of time I spend on a phone actually yeah um, I've been thinking that too just and even like that I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and stuff even when yeah. I'm walking around and I'm like this is probably the time I should have in my own head you know what I mean yeah especially as a you know a, a writer and someone who is trying to be yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's good to turn. It's good to have stimulus. But it's good to be able to find a position where you can turn it off as well, like you know, um, and and have some quiet time. But uh, yeah, I I don't I don't I don't I don't do it. All. I mean, there there are other things that I listen to just for kind of entertainment. Uh, 
uh, I don't know if you know the the British Comics 2000 ID, but they do a podcast uh, about every two weeks where they talk to writers and artists and how they're putting it together. And they've uh, did, did a thing recently where they bought the entire archive of British comics from the 60s and 70s and 80s and they're republishing. And I, fi I find that kind of fascinating to listen to. But um, yeah, it, it, um, yeah, phone is bad, I guess. Mm. Um, so iPhone should stop making them as yeah. well as they, or Apple should stop making them as well as they do what, let me ask you this then about um, I was interested earlier on when you mentioned about you know you were you started making films y yourself yeah. and, you know they weren't necessarily brilliant but they had moments where you're kind of like yeah. oh there's something so now there's so much talk and a lot of it is true um, for example I made a web series at the start of this year with my little brother mm -hmm. and you know we just made it with you know uh a camera and like iPhone mics and you know yeah. absolutely no money went and did it so it's something that I'm kind of fascinated in is like you know you're constantly hearing about how this is the golden time for like you know creative people who want to be making things because you can literally do it with an, an iPhone yeah how sometimes and as someone who does it sometimes I also not I, I resentful is too strong a word but I also find myself going like hmm is it that easy? Do you know what I mean? Because I think sometimes when I hear people, you know, going like, this is the, the easiest time and I, I'm sure that it is so much easier than, you know, 20, 30 years ago when you didn't have that level of technology at your hand. But um, as someone who's, you know, seen stuff being made on like big, massive budgets, I don't, I don't even know what my question is. I suppose just like, how do you view like the phone and the access to technology and how that's influencing the next generation of writers and creators? And um, well, like anything, there I guess there are pros and cons to it. The barrier to entry used to previously be one that you, you could never buy cameras, film cameras, Panavision or, or Ari. Well, Ari, you could if you if you had a quarter of a million books or whatever. But um, it was always a rental process, and the gear was too expensive. And, and like the camera itself is just a box. You've got to buy the lenses and all the accessories and everything that goes with it. So that 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 kind of was always a barrier previously. Now, as you say, because technology has basically opened up the whole world, for me, the barrier is talent. Because a lot of people are making stuff that's not very good. They're making it because it's ease of access and ease of the technology and whatever. And so you, you can end up with like YouTube and other platforms kind of flooded with content. But it, it's whether any of it's really worth watching is, is, is more the thing now. Um, but it is great that anyone has the opportunity to start off with, I think. Um, but I, I don't, I don't necessarily agree that it's easy to get. In, in in some ways, it's it's harder now to make films than it ever was before because there are major issues with marketing and distribution. Um, people say, you know, well, look, there there are far more aggregators out there now. There are far more uh, online uh, outlets for people and whatever. But there's also massive online piracy and, and people stealing um, w whatever you, you make. And like funding, um, it, it, like the whole, especially in the States at the moment, there used to be kind of a middle ground budgetary wise. So you had like kind of low budget and you had tentpole and there was a middle ground where people could do more adventurous or if you like to call more adult fare or whatever. That's kind of disappeared entirely, and the people who were writing and making that stuff have had to migrate to television, which is why, in all honesty, I think most of the really good writing is happening on television now rather than in features. And that's being driven because the studios are in, have gotten themselves into a position now where they've abandoned an audience, and they feel they have to feed 15 to 30, and those people want action explosions, CG-based material, where a lot of the time the script is a secondary consideration to... You know, uh, who can we get that's going to pull people in and, and how much stuff can we blow up on screen or whatever. Mm. Um, so television is much more interesting. Um, so that means, and because it's exploded so much, I, I, I think at the last count it was about 440 scripted TV shows in the States with about another 260 in active development. So that that's a phenomenal amount of writers, directors, producers, producing content at the moment that's either on air or about to be on air. And the fact that there is a proliferation of content platforms increases the opportunity for people to do things. Because there have been cases recently where to be a showrunner on a show in the old days, you used to have to kind of work your way up through the ranks. You'd go through a number of different writer rooms. You'd move up the producer ranks. 
eventually being trusted and given the opportunity to run your own show. But now because showrunners are in such demand and there are so few of them at the, at, the, at the really highly experienced level, lots of new people are being given a shot. So if you come in and say, I've got this amazing idea, the network buys into it, there's a possibility that you can get going with it off the bat, even if you've almost never done anything before. If the idea and the writing are really strong, normally what they'll try and do is pair you with a more experienced producer to make sure that post happens correctly, that the show stays on schedule, that kind of stuff. Mm. And they'll try and teach you as you go along to get to a point where you feel confident enough to, to maybe take the show's reins entirely by yourself. But so so in, in those ways there are opportunities, but there's still there's still the consideration of yes, everyone can make a film, but should everyone make a film or a TV show? Like, do do you have the talent? Do you have something to say? Can you engage with an audience? Can you create characters that people are, are interested in? Um, and one of the big things uh, at the moment is can you build a unique arena for your story? Because it's almost becoming as important now that like people look at something and to differentiate, to make it stand out from all the other content that's out there, it's really got to be something they haven't seen before. So shows like uh, Glow on Netflix, which is set in ladies wrestling in the 80s, mm. you know, that immediately stands out just because I've never seen anything set in this world before and it's colorful and it's bright and it's an all-female cast predominantly and that's all different. So it ticks a box of going, oh, okay, that, uh, I, that show stands out for me as opposed to maybe here's another Scandi noir serial killer thriller thing that I've kind of seen a lot of over the last couple of years. Um, so I, I, I do think that like the kind of the arena, the world that you set the story in is, is also actually becoming more and more important these days as well. Mm. Yeah, which, which makes so much sense. And I, I mean, in terms of then like, even maybe taking a step back from that in terms of, for example, when I came out of school, I went straight into drama school, yeah. which I know, correct me if I'm wrong, I think is less common in the States than it is in Ireland and the UK, which might be wrong. Um, uh, I, 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 I guess it d depends on where you are. If, if, if you're in New York, maybe it's, it's you know, not that uncommon a thing to do. Um, but yeah... Okay. Sorry. Yeah. So yeah, because I feel like in which is a, a positive in the states, like in LA, I get the again. I've never been, but you know, it would be a little bit obsessed with the world, and I, I feel like people are constantly in class there. You know, like that that are that's the perception I've had that they constantly are going to an acting class. Yeah. You know, like on a weekly basis, whereas my sense of it here I'm speaking generally but is that you know I did my three years training uh, and now now I've come out and been been working thank God touch wood but uh, you know that we kind of like not that our training ever like stops but like I haven't been to many classes since I finished yeah. drama school two years ago Um, my little brother is 18 he's in a, doing his leaving cert this year uh, he's a really good filmmaker he's made I'd say like you know six short films and he's quite like smart with it you know like, like he said with like two minute films and four, four minute film five minutes like he, he doesn't like over stretch himself i think they're really good he's at that place now where my folks are trying to push him into like go to college get a degree very happy for him to go and get a degree in film somewhere like the national film school yeah. something like that and he's very much of the 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 mindset you know he's like he really wants to be a a, a filmmaker um, a director really i think and um he's kind of pushing against that yeah well i mean for me, one of the best pieces, and look, I, I, I did film production in DIT as well, but one of, the, one of the best pieces of advice I was ever given was the best place to learn is on a set. Um, so you can't get the four years back that you spend maybe, you know, doing a degree, diploma, or whatever. And is that four years actually spent working on sets more beneficial to you? I think it is because one, it's real world experience. Two, you're going to massively build up your your uh, contact, your networks, uh, which are crucial in, in most walks of life, but particularly in this industry. Mm. Um, you're going to get to watch a great deal of different people work, both either actors or directors or writers or crew, whatever the area is that, that you, you might be interested in. Um, and especially like if people do want to be directors, I, I do think one of the best ways you, you can do to go in is, is as trainee AD. Um, okay. Starting off with, if you're on a big job, you may be locking down traffic on a road three quarters of a mile away from the set. Mm -hmm. But over time, you're going to get opportunities to get one-on-one -on -one time with like very famous actors and successful actors. 
Um, you're going to get one-on-one time with directors with first ideas. You're going to get a really good understanding of, of, of how a set works. And the, there are protocols and there are... Um, you know, there are rules on a set that I think a lot of people don't understand when they just show up and they kind of, I've had people like come out and visit shoots and stuff and they kind of go, well, it seems like an awful lot of people just sitting around doing nothing. And th- th- that that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what's going on, if you like. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, if, I, I mean, not to put anyone off going to college to study if, if that's what they really want to do. But I, I do think for me anyway, I, I found when I came out of college, it was almost like I had to start again. Mm. When you when you go out and start looking for work, because it's it's the real world of, of filmmaking is very different. And do you think that your four year or your you know four years or whatever in, in DIT, do you think that that was okay? It felt like you were starting again, but do you think it was important that to be able to start again, like on professional sets, that you had that grounding, or would it have been a case that if you came out four years earlier and just went to the the, the great thing about the course that I did was that it was predominantly practical. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there was a theory element to it, but it was predominantly practical. And they brought in some great people. Like we had um, ex-DIT people like Brendan Galvin, who's like now a world-renowned DP. Uh, Donald Gilligan, who's one of the great, great Irish DPs who we very sadly lost very, far too young a few years ago. Mm. Um, so they were the people that were coming in that were teaching us. Um, and they emphasized like, you know, Again, camera was my deal at the time, so it was like I had to know how to load a magazine. I had to know how to build a camera up. I had to know how to pull focus. I had to, like th- there were there were a set number of things skills wise that you had to come out with at the end of the day. So the plus side of that is that if you're uh, trying to get work, and and for most people, the place they start is shorts, whether they're film based shorts or go away shorts or what, what whatever it is to try and build up your experience and and your contacts, um, and that's the other hard thing is like being prepared to work for free maybe sometimes to try and uh, build that up um but at least i could go to somebody and say yes i can load that camera so you do actually have a, a valuable skill so if you're doing a course that's very practically based maybe that's advantageous the difficulty can be getting access to the gear like um i, I know dit have have done that like in terms of cameras and stuff and providing and they still do that uh, I'm not sure about Dunleary what way it works, but um, mm. uh, in in one way it's cheaper these days, and that colleges don't have to worry about processing film and getting negs back and all and all that stuff. So digital has made it easier in that regard. But whether whether people have access to Arri Alexas and stuff or, or red cameras at a college level at the moment, I'm not sure. They, I think they do. They do. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, like so, yeah. Maybe if, if if you can get enough practical experience involved, but. But un- unless unless your end goal is maybe writing particularly, um, or possibly production, um, I-, I I do think the real world is more valuable than than the college end of it. Yeah, I'm never going to get hired by Dunleary or anybody to t- <laughs> to come in and give it talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we will not look for sponsorship for this episode from yes. <laughs> from any film school. Cool. Right. Let's give it another spin. Okay. Um, okay. Cool. Uh, number forty-nine. Do you have that one? Don't have that. No. Okay. No worries. Number forty-nine. Question is. Oh, interesting. What do you think people's first impressions of you are? Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> um. He's tall. How tall are you? Six three. Okay, that is tall. <laughs> um, where are you from? I get that a lot because um. M- People don't seem to quite recognize my accent as Irish mm. over there. I get called mid-Atlantic quite a bit. Um, nerd. Okay, yeah. If, if 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 the first conversation that we're having can involves topics like Star Trek or Game of Thrones or anything, we're in real trouble because I'm going to get nerd on you very quickly. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Hopefully, nice things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Is there is there that the word nerd is so interesting? It, that's like had a real resurgence in the last. Oh, that's been reclaimed. That's now that's now an absolute positive to be described as a nerd. 100%. Nerds nerds rule the world at the moment, um, and and in all honesty, I'd say about eighty percent of the showrunners I've met, or writers, or producers, or directors in LA, are uber nerds. Like they they they've just grown up on a, a proliferation of pop culture. 
and it's in their blood and it's in their sensibility and you know it's they would love for the shows that they make to build up a, a devoted fandom and fan base. I mean, who who wouldn't? I mean, that that that's exactly the kind of response that you, you want to be getting if if you're if you're making television. And it's funny. I um uh, it, it was Brandon Braga's birthday yesterday. I don't, I don't know if people are familiar with Brandon, but he was um, one of the the main showrunners um, involved with Star Trek through Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise and whatever. But he also was one of the most reviled. Um, because a lot of people felt that he contributed to the downfall of Star Trek, uh, that Voyager wasn't a very good show, that Enterprise was an even worse show until Manny Cotto came in. And I'm getting very nerdy here now. <laughs> but um, Brannon still goes to the conventions. He was at Star Trek Las Vegas last week, even though he knows he's going to take some hit and whatever, because he recognizes how extraordinary it is to ha- en- have such an engaged and devoted fan base to work that you do be it pro or con, you know? Um, and because not everybody's going to get that in their life. The, you know, I've met some people, unfortunately, who, like, every show they've done has failed, mm. you know? And and they they can't get the hit, and they can't... And then you, your career can get into a troubling position because people don't want to hire you or, or work with you because there's a, a, a conception about you that, like, well, nothing you've done so far has worked, so we're not going to gamble again. And that's a very difficult space to, to find yourself in. So if you if you have gotten into a position whereby, man, you know, I look at there's millions of people all over the world who watch what I do. Even if some of them don't like what you do, you take it, you own it, like you know. And and uh, I'm delighted that he does that. Yeah, one hundred percent. And what like what, like when someone has that experience of, you know, every show they do, I suppose, failing. Like, what is it? do you think that keeps them coming back? I think if you're a writer, like, at your core, it's very difficult to do anything else. Um, like, writing becomes a, a function, I don't want to sound over, overly dramatic about it here, but it's important to survival, it's important to kind of mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... and um, I mean, I suppose there are people out there for whom it is a, a job to a certain extent, and they're jobbing writers. But most of the people that I've met know, I think it's it's like a, it's a core value system. Um, so it's very it's very difficult to abandon it and and give up and and suddenly turn around and try and go in a completely different direction with something. You know, uh, sorry, my phone is buzzing there. Oh no worries. Um, but. Um, uh yeah i mean i mean i mean obviously the constant disappointment constant inverted commas failure mm-hmm. um is going to have an effect on people i suppose over time especially if they feel that their industry perception is in the negative um but you, i i suppose you also always feel i'm just one show away from it do you know what I mean? I can, I can still turn this around if I if I just get that one idea and one shot and one slot, um, you know. And, and and there are so many kind of things that need to fall into place around it. It needs to be the right network, the right time slot, the right marketing, the right casting. Uh, even even if you do have like the best idea in the world, you know. Um, and then you know you need people to watch, mm. um, and that's getting harder and harder to get the eyeballs. Yeah, um, and. And like in terms of um, I don't know. I was I was thinking about it. so. I'm this this is the most selfish interview because I'm just picking <laughs> your brain about things. Like um, I, I my I think I've said this before. Like my dream as a you know as a creator would be to have c- kind of like uh, a show that I've written and to be in. I would yeah. love that. Like you know in the like uh, someone like Lena Dunham yeah. or like Louis C.K. Yeah. Pete Holmes is. Has it those kind of? I really like that. That's what I'd really, really love to do. That'd be like my uh, a massive goal of mine. Um, and there seems to be a real precedent for that at the moment in the states. And I suppose here actually, is what I'm thinking of something like um, Sharon Horgan show with a catastrophe. Catastrophe. You know, like then Rob Delaney and yeah. himself like wrote that. I was going to ask. What I, the question I was going to ask was how far behind do you think like Ireland and the UK are with like trends that are happening in America? Do they generally then like 
float over here? Or are they two very separate like industries? The the way the industries work is completely different. Um, there are fundamental issues with getting anything on the air in Ireland if you are dealing with Irish broadcasters. Um, there's very little money for drama or comedy. Um, there are very few time slots available. Um, there are very minuscule marketing budgets. Um, the UK is better in that regard, but it's also harder in terms of there's even more competition. And it's difficult if you don't have a track record with something to kind of get the attention of a producer or a network or a production company. I mean, at the end of the day, a great idea always wins. If you can win and, and you've written something incredible or you've got a fantastic pitch for something and they can team you up with people to kind of build it up and make it happen, that's great. But that getting in the room in the first place without something as a kind of calling card can be quite difficult. Um, in terms of trends and stuff, I... I don't believe the UK and Ireland ever really follow America because at the end of the day, they can't afford to. Mm. It comes down to money. You can't make a show like Game of Thrones. I mean, technically, you film it here, sure. but you, you can't... RTE can never make Game of Thrones. Um, RTE can never make Breaking Bad, in all honesty. Um, n not necessarily in, in terms of story or, or, or character, but just in terms of the amount of money that they have to kind to kind of spend on drama like this. So you, you automatically kind of develop drama in a different way because one of the things, this is a terrible thing to say to a writer in, in some ways because the best part about writing is the blue sky element of it where you can just put anything down on a page, build a world, whatever. But if you're in a world where you know the broadcasters that you're dealing with, you do to some extent need to write toward them a bit. Now, the world is changing, and there are now bigger opportunities for Irish writers. And one of the things that I've been pushing with what we've been doing with Screen Training Ireland and with the sh bringing the showrunners over is to try and shift the gear of don't just think of it as the Irish and British pill anymore. Now consider the opportunities in the US market, because there is demand still for, for, for content. So you need to kind of in a weird way, you now need to turn off the limiting things that are going on in your head. And you can kind of blue sky it a bit more. Uh, it's like um, there was a, a, an Irish writer I met here recently over a cup of coffee, and they were talking about this idea they had. And I said, it's kind of interesting, yeah. And they said, and, and you know, it, it's a four-hour story. And I said, well, that that's not going to work for American television. I mean, you, you need to build a world and a story that can run for 50, 60, 100, 170 episodes. Like, the more you make, the more profitable the show becomes for the people involved. And that's what they want, you know. And he's like, oh, well, well, okay, this doesn't really work for that. And I said, okay, well, then you've got to go away and figure out a way either to make this work for that or you've got to figure out a different idea to try and take over there because no one's going to buy four one-hour episodes. It's just it's not going to happen. Um, and then he started <laughs> with an argument with me about, well, what about Big Little Lies on HBO? That was only eight episodes. And I was like, yes, but that was Nicole Kidman's first time on television. It was Reese Witherspoon. It was uh, you know, an amazing behind-the-camera uh, team as well. So if you can package all those guys with your idea and right. bring it to, yeah, you've got a shot maybe. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it the, like, unfortunately that there is, um, a frame of mind that, that people have been forced into in a way because of the economic realities of the situation they find themselves over here. But we're trying, we're, we're trying to change that. I think that is changing. I do think people are looking at different ways of doing things. I met one or two really interesting Irish writers here recently who are like now doing comics, um, doing video games. Um, and trying to to build out the worlds that way and build up a you know a kind of a repertoire that way to take out with them. Um, so and now I feel I'm drifting off your original question no, a little bit, but you know it's all yeah it's all good yeah. Oh man, it's so interesting. It's so it's so nice to talk to someone so well versed in in <laughs> yeah. in, in, in that world. Very yeah. cool. I am. Ho ho hopefully, this isn't boring for other people. <laughs> no, I well yeah, fuck them. <laughs> right, let's give it a spin. Okay. <laughs> Be some bizarre question now about toenails. Uh, number seventeen. <laughs> do you have that? No, I don't. Okay, number seventeen. Um, oh, okay. This is 
kind of appropriate and we're going to go right back into your industry <laughs> what's the greatest lesson you've learned about I leave that as blank and I say like insert guest's career you do a few you do a few different things yeah how do you de- describe what you do in a in a word um, can you do that is that an impossible task no it is uh, the, the word I generally kind of use is filmmaker because I think I think it covers a number of different the, the word that really gets me um, very embarrassed is when people describe me as an artist because I have profound issues with that word I, like an, an artist for me is someone who is at the absolute top of their game who's who, who's like you know, built in a, a huge professional career out of what they do, whose work you can really admire and respect and stuff, whatever. And I, I in no way, I, I, I am genuinely embarrassed when people, I've, I've been described that way by some people when I'm being introduced to them in LA and stuff. And it just, it makes me cringe inside, like, because I, I just, I do not feel that I remotely earned that as a, as a, any kind of a descriptor of what I do, but filmmaker, I, I feel is kind of like um, because, like, like I say, I have a, I worked fifteen years in the industry here in the camera department, um, so I'm I'm kind of relatively new to the the other side of things. Um, mm. And in, in, in fact, sometimes I, I run into producers from time to time, and they go, "Oh, are you back? I've got a commercial. Can you come out and pull focus for me?" And I'm like, it, "It's kind of like." Uh, you know, the, the 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 perception shift hasn't hasn't kind of quite happened there, uh, but that's partially because I, I've I spent a lot of time, I suppose, over the last couple of years out of the country as well. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, f- yeah, filmmaker. Okay, so what's the greatest lesson that you've learned about filmmaking? Um. Oh. I would say. Um, that in making showrunners, I made every mistake it's possible to make. Um, the The learning curve was huge, because it, uh, directing a in a way, one directing a drama would, is easier slightly in the sense that you have a script that tells you where you're going from A to Z, and you kind of know everything that you need to accomplish. With with a documentary where things are constantly happening and changing, and doors are opening as you go along it becomes a much more kind of free-flowing kind of experience. And what what we started off as, with as, an, as a, a year-long shooting period escalated to a two-year shooting period and then a year-long edit because we had over 100 hours of footage and there was, there was tons of different ways that you could have built the film. Mm. Um, and then we ended up in a situation where we had a massive year-long legal clearance situation where we had to try and clear everything. And things we couldn't clear, we had to remove from the film. Right. And some of those clearances came so late in the day that we had to digitally alter things in the film. And, uh, so it, it, it's, um, you know, uh, both my producer here, John Wallace, and, and the editor on the film, John Murphy, I think had many occasions when they wanted to kill me. Um, um, and, the, you know, the budgets got busted and stuff a little bit as well. And so, uh, yeah, I would say my learning curve is huge. So the way I'm approaching what we're trying to do next is, utterly different um so possibly making that film has been the biggest kind of filmmaking experience in a way i mean i I was able to take in uh all the technical stuff that i'd done before and um some of the stuff that i'd learned from directors but but you can't apply drama rules to a documentary if you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um and (laughs) it's funny a, a lot of people said to me why did you why did you take on such a big subject for the first thing that you do and it's down to, um, I think, a passion for something. If, you, if you're going to make a documentary about something, I think you have to be passionate about the subject matter. If you're not, I think that really comes through in the finished product. If it's just like something to fill a time slot or, or, or whatever, um, I, think, I think you really have to be invested. And it's the only way to get it done because it's, it's not a money-making game at all to make documentary features. Mm. And uh, it can be soul-destroying at times. Um, and like we... We spent, you know, the guys who helped me make it in L.A., like uh, Ryan Patrick McGuffey and Jason Rose and Jimmy Noon. I mean, we slept on floors. We slept on couches. We ate pizza and Subway for two years so that you're trying to save the money to put it into, you know, what you really want. I can get another sound guy and get another camera guy and get the lenses I want. Mm. Um, and, and that level of sacrifice, I think, doesn't come unless you're really, you know, 
passionate about something. Yeah. And having done that show and, and, and met so many people at the top of their game in this industry, were there some particular traits that you felt you could see across the board that were in common? Yeah. Um, it's weird. S some of them are traits that I, 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 I don't personally agree with, but I, un I understand how they work in the situations they're in. Um, being a people pleaser is generally not equal to being a particularly good showrunner. Mm. Um, because it's not your job to get on with everybody and make sure everybody's happy. It's your job to make sure that everybody is doing what they're supposed to be doing and that scripts are delivered on time, and episodes are delivered on time. That's not to say that you can't be a nice person <laughs> and that you can't have fun and stuff. I mean, there, there, are, there are some Hitlers out there and stuff as well, mm. but um, they generally tend to get, I think, a less... The results of, of that way of working are tend to be problematic and the show tends to end up in problematic territory more often than people who can run the ship with a smile, you know? Yeah. Um, we spent a lot of time with Hart Hansen who was doing Bones at the time and there was not a single person on the crew who had a bad word to say about Hart Hansen. He was like genuinely loved by the people that, that made that show from all the cast all the way through from the grips to the writers, everyone. And that's one of the reasons I think why Bones ran for 12 seasons because you know it was a happy now it, not that it didn't have its issues with fox in terms of time slots and marketing and all the rest of it sure. but um it was a it was a happy ship for the sorry for the people that were there mm. um it's not always like that and sometimes um you know people can actually hate going into the room and hate going to work and uh and, and the other thing is you can get um showrunners sometimes and, and normally it's people who are less experienced who are very insecure about their position yeah. and they feel that if anybody has a better idea than them that's problematic you know oh that's a really, that's better than my idea oh I might, I might have to get rid of that guy if he's going to come up with good ideas all the time right, right. which is insane mm -hmm. you know um, because it should always be best idea wins because all that does is make the show better and makes everybody look better um, but you, you can't you can't come up against stuff like that from time to time but uh, I, th I think the, the, the best traits are um Delegate well, um, let the best idea win. Uh, don't don't feel that you need to be a people pleaser, but don't be an asshole either. Um, and yeah, it, it, and and try and enjoy it. Mm. You know, some people find it hard to. They're constantly stressed out, and they're constantly thinking about the schedules, and they're constantly worried about rewrites and pages hitting the floor the next morning and what are the cast going to say when I rewrite this entire scene that they've learnt and I'm going to hand it to them tomorrow morning you know those are situations you try and avoid if you, if you possibly can do it but sometimes it, it has to happen um, so yeah I mean uh, there's a, co a couple of people who said to me like they can't remember the first three years on their show because it, it's just kind of a blur of madness you know and there are other people who kind of go, oh yeah, man, that that first day on set, that was awesome, and we did this and that. and I think those guys enjoy it more, you mm -hmm. know, uh, which is important. And how open do you think, like LA and Hollywood, is to like as you as an, an Irishman coming over into a world I can only imagine is like mainly saturated with like Americans? Is that fair to say? Like, how open? Like, is it is it a case of like? You go over there and you are on the same footing as, for example, I always think it would be really difficult for an American actor to come and work as an actor in Dublin, I think, because, you know, a lot of what we make here and what we do in the the theatre, which is where I work mo at the m most of the time now, but in, like, film and TV, like, yeah, sometimes you'll get, like, American stuff, but, it, you know, it's pretty tricky to do, like, a good Irish accent, as yeah. we know from so many, you know, yeah. failed attempts. Is the experience of an Irish person going over to LA, whether it be as an actor or as a filmmaker, what do you think that can be? Um, well, well, that's a big question, and there are loads of variables in there. Um, I suppose I suppose the biggest challenge an Irish actor faces in going to LA is that every second person you're going to meet is an actor. Mm -hmm. um, so is that stereotype true? Yeah. Well, see, so I'll give you an example. Um, we were we were having dinner at a restaurant one night and um, we were talking about uh, the interview that we were going to do with Joss Whedon that was coming up mm. and our waitress overheard it and at the end of the night she came up to me with her headshots saying could I could I please pass these on to Joss 
with her details and stuff on the back of it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And she was like, no. She saw an opportunity and she went for it. Um, but... How did you handle that? Sorry to interrupt you. I, I, I just, as polite as I could say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not in a position to, to do that for you. Like that, that would be really unprofessional on my part to, you know, to show up with, with the headshots of a complete stranger. Yes. Um, you couldn't even vouch for her work. I, I, yeah. I, yeah, I just, I've, I don't even know who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I'm, I'm sure on, on, on some level for her, that was a desperation move maybe as, uh, as well. And, or, opportunistic or whatever but but it kind of shows you like the the competition is is phenomenal for actors i mean the um there are a few friends of mine who are irish actors who've gone over who've tried to to build careers for them some successfully some unsuccessfully to date um and it, it, it i mean it really is like i don't think there's anywhere harder in the world to try and be an actor so for me personally i think if you can be if you can get to the point where you've, you're kind of a name in a small pond that you can at least bring that over with you and try and stand out in, in, in some way a little bit um, over there. Um, like the idea, and a lot of people do it, of like, you know, you take X amount of money, you go over, you try and run around in pilot season. I mean, first of all, you have to get some kind of representation or, or the whole thing's another waste of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, there are lots of cases where agents and managers are ripping people off as well in that regard so you need to find somebody that somebody can vouch for for them and what they're doing um but yeah i mean i mean it, it, it's incredibly hard that's now there are people who've done it and i've done it really well i mean jason lamar has had a hugely successful career in tv and film over there mm. um glenn kyo is breaking through in a big way um on tv and film over there now at the moment so it, it, it's not like it's it's impossible to do it but i think it's it's just the the odds the numbers game of it makes it very very difficult mm. unless like i say you can come with some noise behind you that you've generated here or in the uk or or, or somewhere else um you know like people like jack rayner and stuff like i mean uh Sorry. yeah um you know, we're a bit of a find, uh, you know. Uh, I mean, it's Lenny's movie, What Richard Did, that really kind of brought him to a lot of people's attention. Mm. Um, so, like, if, if you can get something like that that happens here that you can kind of launch off the back of, I think you've got a, a better shot over there. I mean, it's it's not impossible, but it's super, it's super difficult. As a filmmaker, it's kind of the same deal. If you can come with some kind of calling card. Now, I didn't. I had nothing. The fa- and the fact that I was Irish actually did help in in the sense that um, people were um, intrigued why an Irish person would want to know about these things. Um, and sometimes even just my accent got me past a phone call that would have been a block otherwise or, or, or whatever. Mm. Um, and a degree of, not that I'm, I, I, not that I describe myself as a particularly charming person, but the the there is an Irishness maybe that that uh, thing and, and 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 Ryan who's working with me who's also Irish he lives over in L A is one of those people who can just talk his way into almost any kind of a situation right uh, which is it was a good skill set to have over there um, so it it, it it was an advantage in some ways um, but you know it's it, it's funny. In in some of the other areas, like um, there's some really successful um, Irish DPs that are working over there now. D- Darren Tiernan, who, who's a, a brilliant Irish cameraman, like has been shooting American Gods and Star Trek Discovery, and like so like that that's like absolute top tier uh, TV stuff over there. Um, we have um, people like uh, Jared Barrett mm. breaking through now. He's just sold a drama to FX uh, yeah. over there as well, but that's kind of coming on calling cards of work they've been able to do everywhere else. And I, I think that is the strongest way to try and to get through over there. O- otherwise, it's it can be a very hard slog and it can be a long, hard slog, you know? Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I, I, so, sorry, I don't mean to be a downer and like uh, no, putting no. people off, but it's just, it, that that's the reality that I've seen, like, you know? 100%. I mean, and I, 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 I'm just going to check the time, see how we're yeah. doing. 
Um, could we got five minutes left? Cool. Um. Right. We. Yeah. We. I, I. I'm sorry. I kind of abandoned. The, <laughs> I was too interested. I kind of just abandoned it. Um. Uh. But I was gonna say like we had it in. Um. Yeah. As I said, like I. 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 I write and and I. I like that. I feel like a writer at heart, but I think I am more an actor. I think there's like a real performative thing in me. If I don't perform, like I. I really like feel it. But at the same time, like for example, now I'm kind of double jobbing on a. I'm doing a play. Uh, in the evening for the next six weeks and then I'm rehearsing 10 to 6 another play and right. I'm, I'm not writing at the moment okay. and I really like I really feel it you know yeah. um, I really really feel it and I think we, we even had it like you know in in in, um, in in drama school you know that someone came in we had an actor from the industry come in and talk to us and like you know there was 20 people graduated with me and he's like you know in, in like six months half of you will be done in like a year like 70% the numbers aren't far off do you know what I mean like, yeah. and like th that's in Dublin and I know Dublin it, it's hard to work as like an actor or filmmaker anywhere I think yeah absolutely I mean I, mean, I think it's, it's one of the toughest things in the world to try and make a living at as being an actor mm. in all honesty um, I mean it, 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 it can be hard to work your way into it, the crew end of things and whatever but like once you're in thankfully production in this country has gotten to a point where you can work regularly and you can work on quite high-end jobs now, you yeah, know? Yeah, um, That's presented some opportunities for actors here as well, but not maybe as many as, as we might hope. Uh, it certainly hasn't, unfortunately, produced the opportunities for Irish writers mm. that we might hope. Um, Penny Dreadful and Vikings are all nearly one-man shows in, ter in terms of the writing, and, and the rest of them don't, are, are using nearly all American writers and stuff. Mm. Now we are getting Irish directors in on shows. We're getting Irish DPs in, and so on. That's great. I'd I'd love to see some more writers maybe trying to break through there as well. But yeah, acting. I I I, I admire anyone who um, you know st sticks with it in the face of great adversity sometimes. Mm. Mm. Um, but again, I, I feel it's probably a bit like writing. It's kind of in you. It's very hard to, like, if you're not doing it, that that there's a cost attached to that for some people, like you know. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Like I at the start of this year, I I've had a like um the people who listen to the podcast kind of know because I I genuinely like document stuff that I'm doing, but like I I'm kind of flat out now with like like rent paying acting gigs for the next until like the beginning of next year, which is rare. But like brilliant. Yeah. Uh, at the start of this year, I had three months where it was super quiet. But you know, at the same time, I had savings from because Christmas was super busy, and I had savings, and you know, I I got a commercial which is handy yeah. and that kind of thing, and it gave me time then to make the web series. You know what I mean? Which yeah. was like something that I I really wanted to do, and you know, I got time to like improve my show reel and things like that. But it's amazing in that those three months when I wasn't really performing except for you know shooting the web series, but you know, we had no money to do that. So we literally shot four episodes over four days, you know. And um, it's amazing how something in you just... I wasn't myself and I was, like, making, like, ha like irrational decisions. And it, it's so crazy how, like you said, it can affect, like, even someone's mental health. Yeah, no, it can, for sure, yeah. It's kind of incredible how um, something that... I mean, acting is one of them things. Like, I, I started doing, like, stand-up comedy as a way of kind of... If I'm not acting I, I don't think I'm a natural stand-up for example but I find it a great way of like exercising my, my writing brain and my performing brain without needing permission because unless you go and make a web series or a short film or write a play acting is one of them things where there's like a lot of gatekeepers you need to like get into a room with a casting director and a director whatever it is then you know do the best audition be the right look all these variables it is one of them things where you, generally speaking, need permission to do it unless you're in a cl class setting yeah. or something. Yeah. So it's it's so fascinating. I guess you got to try find a way of like cultivating that access to it yourself, which is um, yeah. I don't know. It just it it just struck a chord with me when you said about how you can feel when if there's you're a writer at core, you can feel it affect your like literally day to day existence. It's kind of yeah, for sure. It's kind of yeah. incredible. What a what a bizarre note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> um, this first of all, thank you so much. And for no, the listeners, you. I was like um, about twenty-five minutes late because my bike got robbed <laughs> this morning. And thank you uh, for being sorry so about understanding. That. That's no terrible. Yeah. You didn't take it, did you? No. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but thank you so much for being understanding because I was like, of all the people to be late for, a person who like made a show about <laughs> showrunners was like like a industry like so laden with time constraints. <laughs> I was like, well done, Tom. That's wonderful. Oh. Um, but thank you so much. Is uh, I'd like to leave the end just if you want to like plug it uh, Twitter to help people where they can you know buy the show oh um, 
Well, for people who haven't seen Showrunners, uh, here uh, it's it's available on Volta.ie. Uh, uh, it's also, uh, you can download, uh, rent or buy from uh, showrunnersthemovie.com. And if anybody wants to follow me on Twitter, I'm at DC Ireland. And the movie is uh, at Showrunners Film. Wonderful. Desdor, thanks so much for playing Personality Bingo. No, thank you for having me. And thank you, Liz. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So guys, that was Des Doyle playing Personality Bingo with Tom Moore. And Des, a massive thank you to you for taking the time to do it. I really enjoyed chatting to you and I hope we're going to meet again soon. Again, a huge thank you to Liz Alper, fan of the show, for setting it up. As I said, Liz is uh, really great on Twitter, by the way. I'd give her a follow if I were you. And she's a massive fan of the show and uh, a writer on Hawaii Five O, which uh, I don't know. I always like think that writers are just great in general. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, if she, if she ever gets over here, I'd love for Liz to be in the show. So that'd be uh, a bit of an old dream as well. Guys, that if you have someone that you think would be good in the show that you want to put me in touch with I would happily accept recommendations uh, we've got some really cool episodes coming out also feel like I owe you a little bit of an apology it's become very like male centric over the last while I can assure you it's not on purpose and I can assure you that I'm doing everything in my power to uh, amend it but uh, yeah I kind of like I'm really interested in ladies and I just haven't been chatting to enough cool ladies lately uh, so I'm trying to fix that uh, so if you know any uh, anyone but uh, any particular any uh, ladies any uh, anyone um, I love talking uh, and you guys have been very kind to be Guys, as I said, the live episode is coming up. Get your tickets on Ticketmaster. It's presented by Headstuff and Aiken Promotions. It's a Dublin Podcast Festival. We are on the Tivoli Theatre. It's a personality bingo. Irishman Abroad, double header. It's myself and Jarlett, and then Jarlett and Roddy Doyle. So exciting. Follow Jarlett on Twitter, at Jarlett. He's been plugging it loads too. And go see his show, Morgan, Organ Freeman, I should say, in uh, the Edinburgh Finge, Finge, Finge Festival. Not in the Fringe Festival. Uh, he is in a fringier Fringe Festival, which they've actually called the Finge Festival. That's how Fringe that festival is guys other than that a few thank yous a massive thank you to the boss woman Taz Kelleher for mixing editing and producing this podcast go check out her new podcast Taz and Marcus it's the in the shower it's not Taz and Marcus in the shower it's in the shower with Taz and Marcus uh, guys it's really cool the first episode is all about pigeons what more do you want nothing I'll answer for you uh, guys other than that um, massive thank you to Connor Nolan for the wonderful artwork to Leah Moore and Anthony Manley for More Than Machines for their wonderful theme music to Paddy to Alan to all the boys at Headstuff thank you so much for having us to Sean and Laura doing all the social media work you guys are incredible and we massively appreciate it and uh, other than that guys a massive thank you to you for taking the time to listen please do rate, comment, subscribe if you haven't already give it a share on Twitter we've kind of gone quiet on social media guys if we could do a bit to get that back up there I'm trying my best to like retweet and stuff I'm super busy too but if you are listening let me know I always try to retweet it as a way of saying thank you and also as a way to just get the word out there because uh, as I said the more people listen to the podcast the happier I am because uh, I feel like we have awesome guests and awesome conversations and I want to share that with as many people as possible guys just did a wonderful episode with Claire Munley as well have some great guests lined up for you and I'm really excited to share them with you Um, guys other than that thank you so much for listening to Personality Bingo with me your host Tom Moran This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.